The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will it be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do thank you for being so very good to us that you grant to us an image, a picture of your great blessing for us. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Please be seated if you would. You can find your way to Revelation 22, text that I just read, Revelation 22. Next week we begin our series on uh, Advent where we will be looking at the journey to the cross, uh, Jesus' Christmas journey, his journey to the cross, and we begin next week with that, looking at Advent. So today what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up what we have been looking at we have been looking at what the Spirit says to the churches. And the image has always been what the Spirit says to the seven churches in Revelation is not simply what he's saying to those particular seven churches, but rather what he's saying to us as a body as a whole, what he's speaking to Hebron Church. And then from there, looking at that, recognizing that each of us are members, individual members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what are we saying about us as individuals? To some extent, I've been doing you a disservice. If you've been with us over the past seven weeks, there's a possibility that what you walk away with is thinking that we have seven discrete pictures of the church that Jesus is painting, and that what we're supposed to do by those seven churches in the book of Revelation is to kind of look at each one of the churches and to say, okay, in what ways are we like the church of Ephesus? Have we lost our first love? Do we need to pursue our first love? Where are we like the church in Smyrna? Where do we need to be encouraged to be faithful in the midst of suffering? Where are we like the church of Pergamum, where we have to be encouraged to stand firmly for the truth? And it's true that I think that's a way we can look at those seven letters, and we should look at those seven letters. But the seven letters together form a picture of the church, not seven discrete images, but together they come together and form a picture. So they're like pieces of the puzzle. What we've been doing over the past seven weeks is examining each of the pieces. And we've said, look at how this piece looks, and what does this piece look like, and those kind of things. And then what the expectation is, is that you come together. If you ever work puzzles, my family does some puzzles once in a while. We're not huge puzzle people, but occasionally. And it's always that joy when you stick that last piece in there. If you were puzzling, you kind of know what that's like. You stick that last piece in, and, and, and the whole board just kind of lights up and you know, glows a little bit. Ah, you're finished kind of thing. You've completed the, the idea. Well, that's kind of what we've been doing is looking at these seven churches in pieces. And that's okay, but somewhere down the line, 
you need to grab your Bibles. You need to read those seven churches. It's two chapters in the book of Revelation. You can get through them in about eight minutes. You need to read those chapters for the composite whole of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, this is the nature of the church as a whole. And yes, he's got these seven pieces in here, but it comes together as a collective picture for saying this is the nature of the church. And that's the way I urge you to look at that, and particularly not just for the nature of the church. That maybe has been where we have placed our emphasis, and I think appropriately so, but if you've been with us over the past seven weeks, you know that the letters don't just address what the church is supposed to be like. It certainly does do that. Uh, You know, we learn certain things about Smyrna and about Thyatira and about Laodicea, and we're getting the encouragement, hey, you can't be lukewarm, you have to be passionate for your faith, be warm-hearted. You know, we get the different pictures of the individual churches, but built into every one of those letters is the line that Jesus says over and over again, to him who overcomes, and then Jesus announces some kind of a promise To those who overcome, I will give to drink from the water of life. To those who overcome, I will place my name upon their head. To those who overcome, I will wrap them in clean garments so they can stand before my Father in heaven. There's a promise that is associated with each one of those letters. And again, just like the church as a whole, the letters need to be taken as a comprehensive collection in order to get a picture of what God is saying, So what we need to do is go back over each one of those letters and just say, hey, what are the promises that God offers? Collect all those promises together and what does it look like? It looks exactly like Revelation 22, the passage that I just read. Revelation 22 serves as a marvelous bookend to the book of Revelation as a whole. I have been As we've been reading through the book of Revelation, I hope you have been reading your portion at home as we've been reading our portion here at the church. I've wanted to point out each week, I've missed a couple weeks because I just missed a couple weeks, but I've wanted to point out each week the overarching message, be encouraged, God is in control. Be encouraged, God holds the future. Be encouraged, he has already won the battle. There's that that overemphasis in the book of Revelation that stresses the certainty of what God has done. And chapter 22 bookends these first seven churches. The seven churches, throughout the seven churches, have the scattered images of God's promises. In one church, he promises one thing. In the next church, he promises another thing, etc. But what we're supposed to take away is the collective nature of all of the promises. What would it look like? If God were to give all of those promises and we were supposed to see them as we were. And what happens in Revelation 22 is that all of those promises are brought together and you, and you see the summary statement of all of the promises of God for the church. Now interestingly, as we read this passage, as we work our way through the passage, I want you to note not just the parallels to the first, two chap- the first three chapters of Revelation. This chapter 22 bookends well the Revelation. It summarizes well everything in the, in the book of Revelation as a whole. But it does more than that. It bookends incredibly well for us the whole scriptures, the Bible as a whole. Because what we see is at the end of Revelation, God is grabbing all of those marvelous images that he has woven into the description of the Garden of Eden. 
chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 of the Scriptures. And he takes all of those pictures that he says are in part or in summary form or in seed form at the beginning of the Scripture and he says, now look at how they come to fruition. And so Genesis, Revelation 22 doesn't just summarize well for us the first seven churches of the book of Revelation. It summarizes well for us the completion of the redemptive process. That's what we claim the Bible is all about. The Bible is supposed to be teaching us of the process of Revelation, how it is that God takes us from one spot into eternity, and here what we have is the beginning of redemptive process in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden looks like it's got this marvelous river that is flowing from it. You've got the tree of life that is off to the side. You've got the presence of the Lord. You've got all these different things in the Garden of Eden. And now at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, you see everything that is in little seed form blossom to its fullness in Revelation 22. And God is trying to say, he's trying to communicate to us through this, okay, every promise, everything that we've been trying to work our way toward in the scriptures that culminates, of course, on the cross of Jesus Christ, then is worked out in the New Testament, here is what it looks like for you in all of its glory and in all of its beauty. It's a culmination, it's a vision of heaven. And as a vision of heaven, it is like, look, this is what the Bible has been driving toward. This is what you need to hold on to. This is need to, need to be what you see as you move through this world. Let's take a look at what it is that the angel wants John to see about the fulfilled promises, the fulfilled promises of Christ to the seven churches, to the church as a whole, and ultimately throughout all of Revelation. It begins in chapter one, oh, sorry, <laughs> chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me, remember throughout the book of Revelation there has been an angel guide kind of to John uh, the Apostle, he's been writing this. So the angel guide here shows John the river of the water of life. Uh, now we can't underestimate, 90, all, I'm positive all of us get our water out of the pipes that come through the house and those kind of a thing. But we can't underestimate in this arid culture in which the scripture were written the value of water and especially a river. Almost every city that has ever been built has been built around access to a river. Um, you have to get that water for life. And the scripture here constantly portrays the water of life as an image of salvation. When Christ wants to say, look, this is what salvation looks like, he says, can you imagine that, that river or that water of life that you can drink from, that you can then have eternal life and live from? But not just is it just the river, a water of life, but it's a river. And here the river is expressed in this marvelous way, and it's picked up from Ezekiel 7, 47. If you really want to read a marvelous passage about the river of life, look back in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and it talks about how wherever the river goes, it spreads the life of our God, and it fills the presence of the Lord. Now, why is that? Because the river of life here is as bright as crystal, as bright as crystal, here, the imagery is of its purity. Uh, some of you have gone camping or hiking through the woods or something like that, and you know when you run across a real fresh stream of water, and it is crystal clear, and it is pure, and you take a drink of that thing and you go, yeah, this is what water is really supposed to be like. 
At one point, I was on a mission trip, and we were swimming in a lake, and you could literally see crystal clearly 20 feet down. It's the greatest experience that I've had just to be able to see perfectly 20 feet down. This is that, that image here of the brightness of the water. It is bright as crystal, the purity, the cleanliness that is there. It's flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Now, it's flowing from the throne, the, the origin the essence of this life is, of course, Jesus Christ, and we would all recognize that. But it flows from the throne room of God and of the Lamb. Notice that the throne is it's a singular throne, and yet it's the throne of God, uh, and th that's then of God the Father, and of the Lamb. Of course, that's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So the throne is occupied by the Father and the Son, Jesus and yet notice how Jesus is described here. Jesus is described not as the loving one, not as the lion of the tribe of Judah, not as the one who overturns the temple, but as the lamb. He is described in his redemptive beauty, the sacrificial lamb. And so the imagery here that Jesus wants to communicate through Revelation is notice this lamb of God, who is the source of all life and all beauty. Now, the river flows through the middle of the city, middle of the street of the city. Uh, the geography here is kind of confusing and it's kind of hard to picture, but it's clear enough what's going on. John is given a vision of heaven, and in this vision of heaven dominates the river of life, dominates this, this picture of God's great blessing that he pours out, that he has promised is going to be one of the gifts that God gives to his children, this river of life, and it flows through the middle of the street. It's just dominating picture is the presence of the water of life. And on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, this is interesting because the tree of life is singular here, and yet the tree of life is on either side of the river. And, of course, the tree of life here, this brings us right back to Eden again, as did the river, incidentally. The river uh, in the Garden of Eden flows out into the world. So, too, here you've got the river of life in heaven that flows out into the world. And yet on either side of the river is the singular tree of life. Uh, and so it's kind of hard to imagine what is the tree spreading itself over the river? Is it broad like that? I don't know geographically how to understand this uh, or picture it, but I know it's trying to be communicated, that that tree of life, the life that is symbolic of the eternal life of every believer, of those whom God has created and redeemed by his blood, that tree is accessible to everyone. That tree now is no longer as it was in the garden. It was in the center of the garden. And sure, you could get there. But here now, the tree is everywhere. And this is the tree of abundance. It is a tree of life. It's 12 kinds of fruit. And it yields its fruit each month. There is never a moment in time. There is never an image where you do not have immediate access to the abundance of of our God. That's the picture that's trying to be communicated here of a tree that yields 12 different kinds of fruits, one a month. And so there's constantly fruit bearing upon this tree. It's that overabundance of the promise of life that God gives to us, the constancy that's here. The leaves of the tree 
were for the healings of the nations. No longer is the gospel message simply for those who are Jewish or those who are, are set apart or something like that. Rather, the gospel message is for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. There is nobody that does not have access to this blessing, the tree of life that God offers to his people here. The tree of life is for the, he the leaves or for the healing of the nations. No longer in verse 3 will there be anything accursed. There's, there's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no evil because all of that has been removed. The curse, remember the curse in Eden when Adam and Eve fell and everything became cursed through them? Now there is no curse. There is no longer a curse. Nothing will be cursed because we are now, why? But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. That in, in this presence, in this picture of the fulfillment of the God's promises, nothing will be cursed because God himself is present there. God will be present, both God and the Lamb again will be present, and his servants, the servants of God, will worship him. The word worship in that case, has the connotations of some of the things in which we were talking about, uh, the praise and the adoration of the Lord. That's certainly built into this word. So in, in heaven, there is that going to be that constant worship and adoration of our Lord. But the idea of worship, the word that is used here, is the same word that is, captures the picture of service or of ministry. So here the servants of the Lord not just stand around and praise his name, they certainly do that, but they serve him. They work for him. They are accomplishing his tasks. There is, there is life, there is vitality here in the kingdom of heaven that is all built into our intentional focus upon the Savior and our Lord himself. Verse 4, they will see his face. This is a promise that, this, that, that is built into the heart of every human being. Uh, Paul talks about this over and over again, the idea of a desire, a yearning to see the face of God. And that is a yearning that here upon this earth we share in, we have a passion for, but we see no fulfillment of. There's no fulfillment of that yearning to see his face. Even those who walked the closest with the Lord, Moses, the friend of God, says to the Lord, let me see your face. And he says, you cannot see my face, or you will surely die because of the sin and because of our brokenness. And yet here, and, and that is true to this moment, to this day, Paul, the great minister of the gospel, yearns to see the face of God and recognizes that no matter how much he can see and grasp God in this place, it is but through a milky, shadowy mirror that he sees the Lord. And he yearns to see him face to face. Here we have that culmination of the promise of God that, hey, yes, you will see me face to face. And God's name will be on their foreheads. Now, this is not a tattoo. This is not a mark. It's not something that is stamped there on the forehead or something like that. This is a, 
a marking of ownership and of likeness. That's what it means that we have a forehead, that God's name is upon us written on our forehead. It's not that there's going to be pen and ink up there or something like that. Rather, it is that everyone in that place will share in the fact that we are owned, we are handled, we are presented there by God himself. And not only that, but that we continue to gain in our likeness and in the character of Jesus Christ. He has his name tattooed on our heads, which means that we will continue to grow in our likeness of Jesus Christ. His name will be tattooed on our heads. Our name will be on our foreheads. Verse 5, and night will be no more. Night, the the presence, the, the existence of brokenness, of sin, the symbol of that which is not right in this world will be replaced by what? There will be no light of lamp or sun for God himself will be the light. In other words, we will see things We will see the world. We will see ourselves as God sees us. He will see us in his light. He will provide the means by which we are able to see everything around us. Our lives will be dominated by the presence and the beauty of our Lord. This is John's vision of the fulfillment of the promises of our Lord. As human beings... We have a natural tendency, and it's probably a safe one, to kind of be cautious about the promises that we receive, to be a little tentative about those things. We learn as human beings to be cautious when it comes to the promises that we hear and the promises that we make. When I tell my wife I promise I'll be home at 6.30, she knows that that means 6.30-ish. If you promise your kids that you're going to take them to get ice cream and then one of the kids acts up and as part of the discipline, they don't get any ice cream. They realize that that's a possibility. You are planning on a good family vacation. You promise everybody there's going to be a great family Disney vacation and then COVID comes crashing in and you can't have those promises. We learn that there's a certain tentativeness about our promises. And I think as kids, you'll learn that really quickly. And it's built into who we are, and it has to be there because of the tentativeness by which humanity holds the world. We don't know the future. We can't guarantee everything. And so we make promises about the future, and even as we hear them, we kind of soft-pedal it a little bit because we know that you can't control the human element of things. And so we have to be cautious with what we hear and understand. And yet, when we do that with the promises of our Savior, we are robbing ourselves of a life that is oriented around this vision, this perfect vision for us. These are the promises of God for his people. 
There is no hesitation. There must be no tentativeness with which we understand these promises. And to the extent that we do, we shade ourselves, we cover ourselves, we protect ourselves from disappointment because we are utterly convinced that the human element is still going to factor in somewhere. Sure, Jesus says that's it, and that'll probably be the case for the really good people in this world, but sooner or later, I'm sure I'm going to screw it up. Sooner or later, I'm sure these promises aren't going to exactly work for me because I'm just not that perfect, that, not, that, 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 that. And what we're saying, of course, is that we trump the promises of God. May it never be. Brothers and sisters, you are called to live every minute of your life, every minute of your life, in the shadow of the promises of Jesus Christ that come to their fulfillment right here in the book of Revelation. This is the picture that the Lord has laid out for us. This is the image of his promises that we are supposed to live up into every minute of the day. If there's any kind of hesitation, any kind of shadow in your life, any type of tentativeness that says, I know those promises and they sound great, and sure, it'd be wonderful to someday be in the presence of God, but you are failing to live the fullness of the picture that our Lord has for you. The book of Revelation does a great job of laying laying forward for us the future that God holds in his hands. And so there's nothing like the way that the book of Revelation ends, which we will read in a few minutes here together, but I want to draw your attention to verses 20 and 21. If you have your Bibles open, you will see, he who testifies to these things, that is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ says, I say, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The promises of our God are fully here in front of you. Live every minute for them because surely he is coming soon. And how is all of this possible? This is possible because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is for you all now and forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, grant to us a life whereby we live more and more faithfully, more and more fully in your sight. Lord, we want to have that picture before us of the goodness of your grace, of the life in which you've given, and of the promises that you make. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be more faithful in living that way, and each one of my brothers and sisters here as well. We ask through Jesus our Lord, we ask these things. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.